A man on a mission to get justice he never got as a child is standing in front of you, with a bat in his hand. The record player is on and you are tied to a chair in front of him. He presses the record button and swings his bat. All he wants to do is recreate one perfect scream. It somehow seemed appropriate considering the amount of time I have spent on TikTok this week. This case is fictional, okay? It is a mini-sode, so the case is fictional, but still, I feel like it should come with a trigger warning. The case revolves around domestic violence, so even though it is fictional, there is a reason why this particular Criminal Minds episode that we are talking about today is just stuck in my head. It lives there rent-free for the past couple of years, and you will know that it's stuck for a particular reason, because of how random this is. Usually, you know, the Criminal Minds fandom can remember a couple of episodes on top of their head, basically because of the trope that usually involves one of the main characters. This isn't one of them. Nothing happens to the main character. And that's why I find it bizarre of like just how imprinted it is in my brain. So I rewatched it and I decided to tell it all to you. Now that we have the trigger warning out of the way, let me place you in a room where a person that you will soon learn will be the killer of the episode is just eating his breakfast. This gave me miniature killer vibes on so many levels because this man is clearly OCD. You understand it just from the way that he is making his breakfast. He's waiting the toast to pop out of that toaster, then puts it on the plate where you see the two rashes of bacon, you see the perfect egg. It's like a toy that is on his actual plate. That is how perfect it is. Like perfectly made yolk. You just know if this man has like a dozen of eggs. <laughs> you're going to be talking about his breakfast for like five minutes. If he has a dozen of eggs, he's going to use every single one of them until he gets it all perfectly done. It kind of triggers something in me. Like his OCD triggers my own OCDs in some weird, special way. Let's move on from the man's breakfast. Because before he sits down to eat, he plays this record player. It's like an opera just blasting throughout this house at what seems to be about 7 a.m. So you're like, okay, clearly a psychopath. Let's not jump to conclusions. But clearly this is the conclusion that we can make. Justifiably so. And as he is eating his perfectly aligned eggs and bacon, he is just paying too much attention to this closed door. You just know some odd shit is happening behind it. After he finishes his breakfast, he is immediately washing the dishes. Again, not to diagnose anybody, but clearly, clearly a sociopathic trait. <laughs> because you just leave them in the sink, you let them stir there, you let the water run through those dishes, you let the water do all of the work for about a week. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to his door because the paper boy has just delivered the paper of the day. He picks it up, makes sure that nobody's observing, that nobody's nearby. And then he goes to where he's comfortable. And that is his basement. 
He opens the door that he was staring at. It sure leads to the basement where we know nothing good happens because a woman is sitting there in a chair tied up and she's crying. He puts an apron on that we see is bloodied up and you immediately kind of have that disconnect of this person who is like OCD, has cleaned up everything, is dressed like in these beige colors from head to toe and is now putting this clearly different persona on with this bloody apron. He puts his gloves on and those daily papers that he had just picked up from his doorstep, he puts those underneath the woman's feet. He then approaches her, smudges the blood from the gloves over her face, and then puts the record player on. He plays the song called Great Big Bundle of Love. It is a bit too cheerful for what you know is about to happen to this woman. And then he grabs a baseball bat, saying, How do you think it makes me feel? I bust my butt at work the whole day, and all I ask for is a hot meal. To which the woman responds, Honey, I'm so sorry. This isn't my fault. You think I want to do this? No, I know you had a hard day at work. No, rough day, a rough day. It's not a hard day. It's not so hard. So why do you have to make it worse? I'm so sorry. You had a rough day. So why do you have to make it worse? I'll do better. I promise. I'm tired of giving you second chances. And then you hear the blood-curdling scream. And we cut to the team with a close-up on Penelope Garcia that made my teenagehood ten times better than it already was, presenting the case on the screen. We see two women, two victims, that, according to Garcia, have been found beaten to the pulp at a dumpster with their throats slashed. She points to the ligature marks, so the team immediately is kind of running by the ideas of this possibly being a misogynistic sadist. Each attack seems to escalate, so it seems like there was some hesitancy in the first one, and then it seemed like he learned what he was doing with the second victim. Then Spencer Reed says it seems like either he knew them, or at very least he used them as surrogates of his anger. And as for those ligature marks, it just seems to AJ that it means that the victims have been tied up before being murdered, meaning that he has a secondary location. Neither victim was sexually assaulted. And Rossi concludes that either that means he is impotent or the abuse was enough to turn this man on, which can mean only one thing, wheels up in 30. But before we meet a team on the plane, we see the same man on his own, replaying a tape that we are to suppose he had just recorded after torturing this woman and banging his head against a chest of drawers until it starts bleeding. Our team is now up high in the sky, miles away, and it seems like Wi-Fi works, as always, because Penelope Garcia is on the screen, which always just fascinates me how like easily we would buy into every single thing that would show <laughs> on a TV show. We're like, yeah, this just makes complete sense. They have a perfect Wi-Fi on this private jet. Love it. Love that for them. Well, they're looking at the victim's pictures in front of them, and it seems like the perp definitely has a type. They're both brunettes, and both of them have recently moved into the area. 
one of the victims worked part-time as a nurse and the other one worked at a bar, which means both of these jobs wouldn't really notice them if they just didn't show up for work or rather wouldn't report them soon enough. So whoever this man was might have taken that into consideration. He might be good at being invisible. So could be meeting them in a club or somewhere else. They confide in this man because they're new to the area. They are keen to make friends. And then he just aims at this vulnerability and just takes them somewhere. Both also were single. So it could be, again, that they have been looking for a date somewhere. To which Spencer Reed concludes, well, he might be hunting women at places that singles would hang out, like bars, clubs, chess tournaments. And then you have the moment of silence by the whole team letting that sink in (laughs) because it is so appropriate. I love Spencer Reed. He just owned every single episode. And after that awkward silence, Morgan concludes, well, if they reject him, It means he feels emasculated, meaning they break his hearts and he, in turn, breaks their bodies. Now, the team has finally landed and they reach the local police station. Of course, we have the classic, this kind of thing doesn't happen here. We are actually very much welcoming to the FBI, which, again, this is one of those tropes that criminal minds really, above all shows, made you really believe in. Like, yeah, local police forces love when FBI is all in their place, which is the most unrealistic thing. Honestly, it's more unrealistic than, like, things happening to their own team. Is it? Do you have the data to support that? No. Move on with the plot line. Spencer Reed asks about variations in traffic patterns as soon as he walks into whatever office space they gave them because there's a map there. And he concludes that, well, the perpetrator might have actually known the traffic in the area because he could have spread these victims however he chose not to. And it seems like there was a motorway where he disposed of his victims and they were only found a couple of miles away. So this is a huge risk for somebody to take. So either it means it is convenient to this person or matters to him as an area. And it can also mean that he lives nearby. So the other members of the team go into the autopsy room where the autopsy tech confirms that the cause of death wasn't the laceration to the necks as she first thought. Rather, it was the blunt force trauma to the back of their head and lacerations were actually done post-mortem. To which AJ says, well, it feels like he doesn't have the voice himself, so that's probably why, as a ritual, he's doing it after they die themselves. Then the autopsy tech says something interesting. The first victim, there was some hesitation to this kill. And then with the second one, it seems like his confidence is building. The first one also had more severe injuries. He beat her to the pulp with his bare hands, while the second one, he introduced the blunt object. So AJ again says, well, it seems like he wants something else from his victims. Like each victim has kind of a different MO, either that or he's escalating. 
And then we zoom in from the autopsy room to the office in the police station where Shamar is just interviewing the victim's sister. Shamar, my Derek Morgan, mixing up the actors' names and the characters. I have actually woken up, this is no lie, <laughs> so why would you lie about this? This is such a random niche episode in general. Literally only the true fans will be listening to this. The true fans of Criminal Minds, not my own. <laughs> I have woken up to a tweet from Padgett Brewster and she tweeted like they have had a reunion. Everybody was there, you know, Adam Rodriguez, Kristen Wagner, like everybody who played like characters. And I was like, this is the most wholesome thing. And of course, like the fandom lost their minds. Everybody is retweeting it. That was my whole Twitter feed today. That's why Shemar, (laughs) as a character named Derek Morgan, is interviewing the victim's sister right now. It seemed like the relationship between them was rocky. Like they only patched up their relationship, their sisterhood a few months now. And it seemed like the sister, the victim, took it very hard once the parents split up. The dad left and she took it the hardest from the whole family. And sometimes there would be days that they wouldn't hear from her. This is why it wasn't flagged earlier. And the victim called Lauren had a husband, but it seemed like it was a fling. They just hooked up at some bar, and a week later, the two of them were married. So, of course, soon after that, they got divorced, and her sister moved back, still looking for a man to validate her. And the husband checks out, he has an alibi, so we know it's not him. So after this interview, Morgan walks back into the room. (laughs) I put in the script, looking like the hunk he is. Saying she was promiscuous. Oh, this rubbed me the wrong way. This rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, I will give it to you. You're hot, but you can't be saying shit like this. Shema. Literally like two sentences in that interview with the victim's sister. He walks into the room saying she was promiscuous. And then Reed is saying lonely hearts killers look for a challenge and she wouldn't have given him that. I'm like, okay, is this victim late? What the fuck are we witnessing right now? This episode is from season 10. We should have known better. AJ says, okay, stop being sexist. She doesn't say that, but in my head she did. And both of them, both of the victims, yes, lacked confidence. The first victim, called Maya, this is not why I'm talking about this case, by the way, she didn't get a promotion. And then Lauren, it seemed from the sister's conversation, needed a man to validate her. You see, you can put it better. Don't say they were promiscuous. What the fuck? So, Morgan concludes to that that this perpetrator might be targeting women with body image issues. And just like that, we zoom in on one woman that is clearly in some sort of distress. We find out we are in a waiting room of a caseworker's office, and one such caseworker opens the door to a distraught woman with her small boy. And as you can imagine, we have seen this one such man. We have recognized him from just how beige his whole appearance is. The woman immediately in that office starts crying. She breaks down. And this man asks her, is this her first time here? She says no, but her son, who is only seven years old, saw it happen this time. This man stops, offers her tissue, and then just goes closer to her, to her side of the desk. Just sits on it and says, You have the option of staying here, or do you have somewhere to stay the night? The woman responds that she has a friend to stay with, to which the man says, That's good. Now tell me exactly what your husband did to you. 
And then we are brought back to the team brainstorming. Kate, who is played by Jennifer Love Hewitt, yes, this is the randomest season that I'm covering the episode from, she is wondering why target women with low self-esteem. To which AJ responds, well, it would prolong the torture, the more he does, the more powerful he would feel. Rossi adds to that that it also means he might not feel important in his everyday life. And Hotch then concludes that, well, yeah, his only chance of dominance is with his victims. So, Kate drives back to that point, if this is his display of control now, maybe the stressor occurred when he didn't have any power or control. AJ, who clearly has been doing this for 10 years, says that this means he's looking for surrogates, for people he holds responsible for his pain. Something did happen to him as a child. Just as they come to this conclusion, we are brought back to the distraught woman that walked into this care worker's office. She's just walking out of it, and then we see her on a phone, thanking her friend for letting them stay the night as she's packing up the suitcase. She is all packed up and just sits on the bed, just trying to reflect, process it all, and then she starts calling out for her son. And he just isn't answering. But you hear the record player. As she gets up and starts frantically just calling for her son, she finds him just in the living room. It's completely peaceful. He just seems to be eating candy and watching TV. And she kind of gets upset, like saying, well, how many times did I tell you not to go to the cabinet and get this candy? To which her son innocently responds, I didn't. The man gave them to me. What man? And the son just points, that one. And as she turns around, this man comes out of the shadows and hurls onto her. We speed up to the police officers being at this woman's location. We find out that her name is Greta. And the son, after this man basically kidnapped his mom, knocked on the neighbor's door, just saying that a man took his mom. And the team immediately thinks this is an escalation because this is the first time this man broke into a house. So the police officer asks, what makes this one different from the others? And Kate concludes she's a mother. They get pulled in on a call with Garcia. They're immediately asking her, tell me that you found a husband because where is he? What's going on? To which she says, yeah, but you will never believe where. And we zoom in on the delivery of the profile, which like sent chills down my spine. It was the best freaking, I don't know how many seasons Criminal Minds had, but this always had my blood rushing. Hotch is delivering the profile. They are looking for a white male, mid to late 30s, with history of physical and psychological abuse. And this type of perpetrator, they classify as a projecting punisher. And projecting punisher is based off of the injuries that were consistent with domestic abuse and the latest victim being a mother and a victim of abuse and the husband being jailed after domestic altercation. This type of criminal victimizes women who he believes in one way or another haven't stood up for themselves. This means that rather than looking at them as victims, he holds resentment towards them. As the team is delivering the profile, we see a flashback of him as a child being OCD, lining up some cards, and then he hears his dad screaming at his mom in the living room. 
This type of perpetrator hates what the woman represents, not her. Hesitation means that he feels conflicted. He feels like he has to do this. He might even want them to fight back. Hodge asks everybody at the police station to look at the domestic violence cases going back 25 to 30 years. Cases where women would land in group homes, shelters, there would be court procedures. And just as he finishes delivering the profile, we see Greta waking up to her worst nightmare. This guy has already put his bloody apron on and Greta freaks out, thinking that he did something to her son. She immediately asks him, where is he? What did you do to him? To which this man responds, he's fine, now that he's out of that toxic environment. You think this is the first time he saw him hit you? The screaming, the fighting, he takes his bed. You think he's stupid? Can't imagine what that must do to a child. To which Greta responds, I made him safe. But you made it happen over and over again, which is why I think you're perfect. While Greta is tied to the chair, we go back to Reed because the stomach contents reports have just come through to the team. Reed is reading out the stomach contents. Now I realize the script requires some changes and he finds some interesting data. He finds that in the victim's stomach, both of them had salt water, honey, ginger and tea. Both victims also had ulcerations on vocal cords. So Morgan is just reading the same report, not understanding. Apparently he has never made tea in his whole fucking life. I don't know. So he just says, spill it, kid. And Reed knows this combo. He knows it well because it is often used to treat sore throats. But a sadist wouldn't care, according to Morgan. So Rossi asks if it's not about the violence, what it is about. We zoom in on Reed, who says their screams. Back in the basement, we see Greta spill out what we are assumed to believe this exact same mix that the team has just been speaking about. This perp tells her that she can't stop until she gives him what he wants. He puts that same jolly song on to this record player, takes the bed, and you hear the same old spiel. The script that he has repeated multiple times before. How the hell do you think that makes me feel? She says... I said I'm sorry. Please, I know this is all my fault. I'm tired of giving you second chances. And then we just are left to assume what will happen next. Luckily here we don't hear the blood-curdling scream, but we hear the familiar line that is on repeat every single episode. It is why this show is iconic. The line, you're on speaker, Garcia. Because you just know that she is the one who is going to come through 20 to 30 years of history that Hodge has assigned to this police station. You know, you know, when they deliver the profile, whatever Hodge says in the end, Garcia is the one who will do the job. Now, what she found out was that Greta's name was not on the list of any shelters. Had she been, Garcia would have definitely found her. So she has reached a dead end and is asking the team to give her some freaking filters. So Morgan suggests what if he works in the system? That would allow him to see himself both as a protector and an abuser. And now that he's acting as an abuser, he can reenact what happened to his mother. 
And these types of unsubs always keep a trophy. So Morgan asks, well, how is Scream a trophy? And everybody in the room is like, the fuck is this guy's first day on the job? Like, I swear he has been here since like episode one. What the fuck? To which Kate kindly responds, it's not. Unless he's recording them, which is like, wow, a dramatic delivery line. And then we zoom in on what's happening in the basement. I'm like, the fuck? Ever heard of podcasting? Ever heard of radio? Like, it's literally a voice recording, my man. Why didn't that connect in your head? We go back to the house of the perp, who is now opening up his wardrobe as he's looking for a new shirt, because the other one had a drop of blood on it. And there is no lie, (laughs) the costume department really worked hard on this one. There are 20 shirts that are equally beige, just covered in foil in this wardrobe, because, you know, portraying of OCD on screen. So after he puts a new shirt on, he sits down by his chest of drawers and just plays that tape. Yeah. Now that Garcia had some time to look at the new perimeters, Morgan hits her up with talk to us hot stuff. Garcia's on the line again, baby. She is still hitting a wall and needs help. And now on the call, you know, this is the crunch time. Hodge says the mother would have been in her 20s back then. He most likely grew up nearby. She's like, okay, let's go. Like, why the fuck didn't you give me this in the first place? Garcia, look for women who had frequent trips to the ER, but not for abuse, rather just like freak accidents, clumsiness, you know, something that they would sell as lies to cover up for their husbands. Occupation, possible teachers, nurses. And Garcia, within seconds, finds a match for his mom. I will put it on the screen because can we just appreciate people who take the time, who actually have as a job on these shows to write up the fake articles. Because these really make you buy into the whole thing. Like it's an actual whole article. And even like the victim's files, you know, that then Garcia pulls up on the screen. It's just, I just appreciate you. Whoever you are, you are doing some God's work out there. She finds out that there has been, indeed, an article confirming a murder-suicide 25 years ago. The victim's throat was slashed, and the guy ended up with a bullet in his head. And a child, called Peter Holden, was put in foster care until he was 18. And this is where the trail ends. And just before they go, there is a name that keeps repeating itself on all of the files. A name of the officer who keeps popping up as the responding cop to the scenes. So, of course, she sends them the address. Morgan says, thanks, baby girl. And we go to the basement before we go to this police officer. Because Peter is unhappy. He has just listened to that voice recording. And he is screaming at Greta, you didn't do it right. I shouldn't have to do this. Why are you holding back? And instead of punching her, he starts smashing his head against the shelf, which I don't know, as a victim of kidnapping, like, is it more terrifying? I mean, I guess it's not because you don't actually want to be punched, but you're just looking this man lose his damn mind. He's repeating, it's not right, it's not the way it was, it has to happen in a certain way, while he's just smashing these cabinets. And then we zoom in on an interview with the responding officer. Of course, he never forgot Peter's face. And you can really see that this has affected this man. He still remembers this child, he still remembers every single detail of it. So Kate asks him, why did you never arrest him? 
Well, his wife, as everybody expected, covered for him. And he blames himself because Peter, he loved baseball. He didn't deserve any of this. He didn't deserve the household that he was brought up in. We see in a flashback that few nights before the murder-suicide, this responding officer appears at the door of the Holden household. And he appears there with a gift for Peter, a cassette recorder. And Kate just concludes, well, this is a strange gift for such a small child. It wasn't a gift, was it? No, he wanted him to capture his mother's abuse. The police officer promised him if he can get him the recording, he can put this son of a bitch in jail. After this interview at the vending machine, Kate is just having a light bulb moment. She's wondering, well, there's only one person who offered this little child help at any point in time. So what if Peter changed his last name to the officer's last name? Here, I don't know why were they short for tape, but they don't record this call with Garcia. Because, you know, Kate is about to make a call to her to look this person up. But no, that doesn't happen because we go to yet another flashback. And this is the flashback of the night of. Peter is again hearing his dad just go at his mom. And here, now he has that recorder. He switches it on and opens up the door. We hear the same old spiel, all I ask for is a hot meal, and the same song starts playing in the flashback. We hear Peter's mom say, put the knife down, and then we see Peter seeing his dad with his knife after his mom's throat was slashed. He sees his dad take the gun out of the drawer and shoot himself right in front of his son, and the record is just stuck. The tape was never handed over, though, which means that he held on to it. And something must have happened to the original recording. So now that the team knows of this, they know what the trigger was. And you hear Morgan say to Garcia, Hey, sweetness, give it to me good. (laughs) Ah, These one-liners. Garcia has all the deeds. The name is Peter Folklore. As Kate predicted, he did change the last name to the officer's one. So predictable. Only in the system for about 16 years. And he did work as a case worker for the Angel Care for Women for the past six years. And then a month ago, he called a fire department, saying that he has lost some precious belongings in the part of his house that caught fire. As the team is dispatched onto the scene, we see Greta manage to get out of her bounds. She takes that baseball bat and she hides under the table. And the game of hide-and-seek is about to begin, because Peter heard some commotion and he's now back in the basement. He's saying the sooner we get this right, the sooner we can end this. And he does this thing where he pretends like he doesn't know where he is. He's like opening different wardrobes, opening different places. And then he just pulls out a chair and drags her out. She slams him with that baseball bat, but he takes over her. Just losing it and saying, I wish you haven't done that. We hear the police sirens. He's saying, you ruined it. We were getting somewhere. We can try again, she says. You don't have to do this. But he smacks the chair and she's fighting. She's trying to climb the stairs as the police pulls up. 
He knocks her out and hides both of them inside of this closet in the basement. The team locates the basement immediately inside of the house and you see AJ shining that lamp through the shutters on that closet. So Peter pushes the door open and starts hitting AJ with a bat. She fights back, but again she ends up on the ground with Peter saying, scream for me. And just at that moment, Kate is walking down the stairs saying, you wish, and she fires the shot. Kate, Jennifer, Love Hewitt, the ghost hunter, <laughs> ghost whisperer, Maya. Yeah, she says a medic is needed. And Greta is saved, and we are just left to believe that this man died, I don't know, we just never have a follow-up on him. So Kate then finds the tape recorder in that basement, and he recorded the last bit from when they entered the house, because the last bit that she plays is Scream for Me. And the ending quote, as they are again wheelsing up in Ferti, as they're again on that plane, is nothing can drive oneself closer to insanity than a haunting memory refusing its own death. Now, isn't that some poetic shit to end this on? Curtains close. What did you think about this case? Do you understand the fascination? I think I'm so fascinated by it because... The acting was also so on point. Like, there was no single actor that just didn't nail it during this one. Like, you know, sometimes the the actors that they find, you kind of, like, struggle to believe. You're like, okay, this is, like, their first acting role. Here I was like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm buying into every single one of these. Like, you know, costume design, everything, whatever the screen people titles are that make sure that you buy into a story every single thing I was like I'm buying into this this is insane it's so like fixational in a way and yes I have googled more information on that type of profile and literally that is the single line that he is basically using these victims in order to punish them for like what he sees they should be punished for because he was going through that same experience and I was like okay so this is clearly one of those invented ones because usually Criminal Minds does have like the profiles that kind of exist or have existed before when it comes to the you know real life BAU no no this time I was like what is this Punisher thing <laughs> I was like, let me replay this to see if I can get anything out of it nope one liner I was like Sure, great. If you are of the Criminal Minds fandom, which episode is just, you know, sitting in your head rent free and it doesn't have anything to do with the trope, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with one of the main characters, because I think then you know you're a true fan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you see that Twitter picture? I just want them all to be friends so Badly. I want them all to be friends more than any other TV show cast. Yeah, fuck friends like the actual TV show. No, I don't want that reunion. Criminal Minds reunion any day. Any day. Kristen Wagner, Penelope Garcia has a YouTube channel, by the way. It's called Kristen's Agenda. Follow it. Follow it right now. Um, Anything else that you want to add? <laughs> Why? Like a fake fan? Everybody that knows me in real life and is listening to this episode is probably very weirded out that I haven't covered that episode that actually covers Penelope Garcia. Like, it focuses on her and on her origin villain story. (laughs) And it has that scene where she walks in to a Beyonce song. Oh my god, listen. I have this in, like, favorites on my phone. Let's, Let's bet on it. Let's bet on it. Let me find it. 
First of all, not that I have anything to prove, but this is one of the videos that is favorited on my phone. One of the iconic moments of the show. To punish me for taking a risk, then I encourage you to do that. But do not put the rest of my team on trial for something that I suggested. Calm down, agent. This is calm and it's doctor. And now, the iconic video to end this mini-sode on. You take care of yourselves, okay? <laughs> just play it. Just play it. I'll see you. I'll see you soon, fuckers. Bye.